Hi everyone, I'm Diana Sebsta, Director of Bereavement for the Joseph T. Quinlan Bereavement Center and Karen Ann Quinlan Hospice. And I wanna welcome you to Grief Matters, conversations about life and death. No subject is off limits and no topic is taboo. I wanna invite you to send in your questions about anything end of life, dying, death, and grief. Hi everybody, it's Diana Sebsta, Director of Bereavement for the Joseph T. Quinlan Bereavement Center and Karen Ann Quinlan Hospice. And I'm here to bring you another episode of Grief Matters. But today is a very special episode because it's the first time that I get to have a guest on. And I wanna introduce you to Mr. Charlie Stackhouse. And our topic today is about reinvestment. So Charlie's gonna share with us his experience after losing his wife, Effie, and coming to the Bereavement Center and what his journey looked like to the place where he is now today, where he's using all of that information to help other people. So this, in, this episode is to inspire hope that to have joy again, or to be happy again, or to get invested in life again is possible. So without further ado, I'd like to have Charlie tell us about Epi's journey and what brought him to the Bereavement Center. Oh, very nice to be with you, Diana. Um, this is the woman, she, she won't admit this, but I'm sitting here because of her and because of Bereavement Group. Um, Epi and I were married 38 years and eight years after 30 years of marriage, she came down with metastatic breast cancer from a lump, which the doctor said it was all you know, taken out and everything, but it went to her bones. She and I worked at a psychiatric hospital together and that's how we met. So we became crazy about each other right away. And um, when she became increasingly sicker, I had to quit work to take care of her. And after eight years of doing everything, about a year before she died, I was having grief knowing that she wouldn't survive. And I was having dreams about seeing her in a casket. So I started to see a social worker at the hospital. And the fact that I could talk about it, then the very troubling dreams went away. But then after Epi died, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know anything about hospice. I didn't know anything about grief counseling. I was alone and isolated and absent from my wife. And about six months later, when I was really not surviving well and I honestly wanted to die. A good friend from church would meet with me once a week in um, Charlie Brown Steakhouse. And she allowed me to express my grief openly and honestly and completely, tears, anger, whatever the case may be, without judging me. She just listened. So she was a reliable force that enabled me to continue and not do something tragic. So I don't really remember how I found Karen Ann Quinlan, 
in bereavement. But when I first started in the group, I couldn't talk. I couldn't express myself at all because it was too painful and I couldn't put it into words. And I always looked for one of the other fellows who came into the group and uh, I always saved a seat for him because he was so articulate and emotionally sound and revealing of what he was going through. I would just say in group, what he said, that's what he said. That's what I'm saying, what he said. And gradually um, I started to see Diana individually. And I can't even begin to tell you for months on end, all I would do is use up her Kleenex and crying. <laughs> and she actually enabled me and gave me quote unquote permission to express myself openly in public. And I remember when the headstone for Epi's um, grave was ready, I said to Diane, I wanted to have a little ceremony. I was a deacon in the church and I wanted to have a little ceremony with the altar guild of which Epi was the head um, person. And I said, I don't, Diana, I don't think I can do this. I'm going to start crying and I'm going to get everyone upset. And it's just going to be a, a flop. I should just not do it. And Diana gave me the, the Solom, Solomon's advice to say to the group, openly say to them, you're going to, I'm going to become upset. But don't worry, I'm not going to disappear and I'm not going to faint. But I won't be able to contain my tears and my crying. So I'll be all right. So just bear with me. And so I started the service. And sure enough, everyone in the group, except for me, was crying. And it was like... I, I, I was permitted to be honest and open with my emotion without being embarrassed or inhibited or hesitant and um, awkward around people. And there were so many episodes that seemed uneventful to Epi's death that would trigger what I came to know as a tsunami of grief. I went into a store to buy curtains and I don't know anything about curtains. I never bought curtains. I've never hung curtains. And I went into JC Penny and I said to the woman, I need curtains. And she said to me, what kind of curtains do you need? I said, I don't know, curtains. <laughs> and she said, well, the shears, there's, I don't remember all the names now. She said, go around the store and just pick out something that you would like, and then I'll help you out. Well, I just broke into tears because I said, I can't do this without my wife. And about halfway into the group, most of the people there lost husbands or, or wives and some lost kids. But um, Epi and I never had children of our own. We had two foster kids, but not nothing that we gave birth to. And so when I left work, I was no longer an administrator or a psychologist at a hospital. So I, I didn't have that identity. 
I was no longer a husband because now Epi was dead. And I was never a father. So I literally lost my entire identity of whom I was. And I found it really disturbing in group, particularly people would say, if it wasn't for my grandchildren, if it wasn't for my kids, I don't know what I would do. And I remember bursting out into group and say, but I don't have any kids. What am I to do? And it was in that group process that they would give me feedback and support and encouragement. And I realized that I've had kids around me all my life teaching in Sunday school and neighbors and everything else and my nieces and nephews. So I was blessed through them. Um, and after a while, when I became more integrated in my grief, uh, well, prior to that, I, and I have to explain this to Diana, about three or four months into my grieving process journey, I suddenly felt I was no longer in my human body. Uh, I'm not a hunter, but you, when you go hunting for deer, you dress the deer in the, in the woods and you literally empty themselves of their entire contents of their insides. And I was driving the car and all of a sudden this overwhelming feeling of nothingness, emptiness came over me, which was far worse than the grief mm -hmm. because I believed I didn't exist. And that was by far the worst. And that lasted for three weeks. And then gradually, I keep going to group. And every time I would go to group or see Diana, I would get halfway there and say, but I don't want to go to this. I feel badly every time I go. I don't want to do this. And I would turn around half the time and then say, no, I got to do this. And turn back and continue going to group. And about two years into, I guess, my journey with you, I said, there's other people coming through that door, mm -hmm. coming into group who were like me. And if it wasn't for the people in that group and Diana and, and other people, Kathy, I wouldn't be here. So I said, I have to get more schooling. I have to be able to intelligently help people as I was helped. So I went to Colorado where, um, help me with the name of the counselor. Dr. Alan Wolfell. Yeah. So I started to take courses with him in Colorado. And there was a young couple on, on board the plane. I'll never forget them. I love this story. I was hoping you'd tell this story. Yeah. There was a young woman sitting in front of me in the center seat and a young man sitting next to me in the center seat. And they were outstretched their hands behind each other and they were holding hands. So I said to her, would you like to change seats? You know, so you can sit next to him. And she said, no, we're okay. And at that point was the first time 
in several years, I felt happiness for them, happiness and joy for their love, which I never thought I would ever, ever, ever experience again. I was thrilled in their love. They couldn't wait to tell me about it. Yeah. And I knew then that through all these experiences, I was becoming healthier and um, more integrated and um, being able to not run away from my feelings and not discuss them, but being available to others when they were going through similar pathways. And sure enough, I mean, in supermarkets, there was a woman um, in, the, in the supermarket behind me checking out and she was on the phone and all of a sudden she started crying. And I said to her, what happened? And she said, someone in my family just died and I didn't get a chance to say goodbye. So I said, would you mind if we talk and sit for a bit and just talk about it a little bit? I'd like to hear about your relative. So here we were in the middle of shop, right? We're all bustle and hustle and all these shoppers all over the place. <laughs> and she was telling me about her loved one who had just died. So we learned from that experience that um, it's our opportunity to give to others because we've been given so much. Um, there's so many stories I could tell. Tell, me, tell us about um, your neighbor who recently had a loss and what you were able to do for her. Oh, yeah. I, I had to sell my house because of my eyesight. My eyesight has significantly deteriorated. So my friend Kathy convinced me, not because I'm old, even though I am, but she convinced me to sell the house because of safety. Because a couple of times I fell down the steps and everything else. And so rather than being threatened by my nieces and nephews of taking my car keys and everything else, which represents independence to me, she um, convinced me to sell the house for safety reasons. And I did. And I moved into this beautiful apartment complex. And across the hall from me in the, in the same corridor, there was a man and a wife and the husband was in a hospital bed. And he was gradually, I didn't know what was wrong with him, but he had a form of cancer. And he died shortly thereafter that I, after I met them. And Carol, the woman um, said, I can't, I can't do this. I said, no one can do this alone, but we need someone to companion us through this journey. And I wanna be that companion for you. So whenever you would like, come into my apartment or I'll come into your apartment and you can express anything you want. Anger, frustration, resentment, crying, whatever the case may be. So we did that for a number of times. And then on the day of the funeral, I didn't want her to feel isolated or alone. So I went to the cemetery and I parked a distance away, but my car is very remarkable because it's bright red. So I parked it in a, in a space 
distant away from the gathering, but so she could see my car. And she said, you don't know how important that was to know that you were there helping me through this. And that was my intent, but I didn't want to be recognized for it. It's just what you do because we all have losses. Loss of a, a spouse, a loss of a job, a loss of any any number of losses. And we should be there for that time because we've been blessed through other people. Well, that's a really good story because one of the things we talk about is at the end of our grief journey, we know that there is no such thing as the end of the grief journey. Right. But we know that there does come a place where there's a reinvestment. Right. And that reinvestment could be, you know, wanting to get into a relationship again. It could be wanting to go back to work again. It could simply be, I'm going to get out of bed and take a shower today. Right. So to be able to get to a place where you recognize the value of supporting somebody and walking with them on their grief journey, that's a form of reinvestment. And a lot of you have heard the podcast about no one has to walk this journey alone. Charlie just described the perfect example of no one has to walk this journey alone. And no one knows the path better than somebody who's walked it right. before you. Yeah. So that's one of the things we talk about is how people who have had a significant loss or any loss really feel that other people don't understand. We're still in that grief and death phobic kind of society or culture. So that's why it's so important for us to be there for other people. One of the things he left out of the story. I'm going to mention one thing I left out of the story. Yes. Which you told me to try to do when I couldn't talk. In the, in the initial stages for about a year, I guess, I, I couldn't express myself and I always pointed to my buddy. So Diana convinced me to start journaling. So in the journal, I could express my deepest and most profound and frightening feelings and emotions that I couldn't articulate in person. So I did that for around a good six to eight months, I think. And then I felt like I didn't need it anymore because I could put into words what I was feeling. And about two years ago, and Epi died in 2009. So about two years ago, I took out my journal and I reread it and it was frightening. I felt like I was reading a story about someone else, but not me. Because I could no longer identify with the depth of what I was experiencing then. Um, but it invigorated me to be available more for people who are going through bad times. Because no one should do that. Because we're all going to meet people, it could be accidental, it could be on purpose who need a helping arm, who need to have that companionship to assure them that it'll take time, but we have to write our own grief story and our own grief recovery. So my neighbor, Carol, um, it's now been about four or five months. 
and she just recently had a, a wedding anniversary or 50th anniversary. So I started to talk to her and I said, how are you going to recognize it? Because it's going to be a tough day for you. And she said, what do you mean? And I said, well, you're going to go into um, reliving the loss and reliving the happy times that are no longer available. So plan something with your kids. Either take them out to dinner or have a, a cake in remembrance of Nick, but do something, but have a plan. Because if you have a plan, then you can execute it and it minimizes the effect of, of your suffering and not being able to continue. Um, so once a year, um, on October 15th, when Epi died, um, I would take the altar guild from my church out to dinner because Epi was the head altar guild person who trained the other women. So I would take them out to dinner and we would remember Epi and talk about Epi. But I wanted them to know that how much I appreciated them because they were carrying on her legacy. So I did that for 11 years. And then I, I didn't feel the need to do it any longer. I, it's hard to explain, but um, Epi knows we're thinking of her all the time. Mm -hmm. And they know, I, the Walter Guild know I, I appreciate them just for who they are. Um, so we don't need to do anything special any longer. And that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. So the other ways of reinvestment is, you know, like when we're talking specifically about the grief journey is Charlie was in group for a long time. And it wasn't because he needed to be there to process his grief, but he did recognize, as he said earlier, that there's other Charlies walking through mm -hmm. that door. And so he knew that he could offer his experiences in that group process and inadvertently became one of our internal group leaders. So whenever anybody was really struggling with something, he was right there to help them with process their anger, process their guilt, process regret, process trying to make decisions because everybody does this in their own unique yeah. way for a variety of reasons. Yeah. He also took the opportunity to take the hospice volunteer training and became a hospice volunteer as well. Right. And he also took our bereavement facilitator training and got a really, not that he didn't need any more education about the grief <laughs> process, but he got a crash course in grief. And because he's such a strong internal leader, he learned even more information about the support group um, protocols or you know programs. So there's so many different things that you could consider when you're down further in that grief journey. So mm -hmm. that's one of the things that we want everybody to know. The message is very loud and clear that when you're at that long path and you're coming down the end of the road, it doesn't mean the end of grief. We carry that loss with us forever. But grief changes and it looks different and we want to get to the reinvestment stage. Yeah. And in the beginning, we don't see that that's even a possibility. There's yeah. not even a glimmer of hope yeah. that that's a possibility. Yeah. So that's why having a guest like Charlie here today is so important 
to show people there that it is a possibility. Yeah. Even when you're in your darkest place and you think there is no future, there is hope. Yes. I mean, sure. one of the things that I, I learned quickly is by and large, people have good intentions when they're expressing their sympathy to you. Um, but sometimes their good intentions are not helpful. Um, I had um, to report Epi's death to uh, the personnel office in Trenton. And this was three weeks after her death. And I'm giving some information to the person. And the woman on the other end of the line said, it would be a lot better if you put Epi on the phone. And that was just crushing to me because I said, I would give anything to be able to put Epi on the phone with you, but you just have me. So the point is people will give you advice and say, well, you may meet another person or you should go back to work or this is too big of a house for you to live in. I think you should sell. So the bottom line is each of us are scripting our own grief journey book. And we can't replicate someone else's journey because it's uniquely ours. And so be cautious of what people, even though they have good intentions, be cautious of what people say to you in terms of trying to be helpful, but it can be kind of hurtful sometimes. Thank you for adding that. So with the idea of our um, topic of reinvestment and that there is hope, are there any final words that you want to offer our audience? I miss my wife terribly. But unfortunately, during the time of our marriage, I didn't appreciate all the the benefit and she gave me. It was only later that I realized I'm the man today because of my wife, our marriage, and who she was as a person. And so I take no credit. <laughs> this is this is just Epi working through me and the good Lord. So that's all I thank you for that. He's a very humble individual, so as you can see. So I do want to thank you, Charlie, for sitting with me today. It was my honor, really. Thank you. Really. Bearing your heart to everybody and offering what a glimpse of what your grief journey looked like. Yeah. And being able to let people know that there is a future, there is hope, and there's ways that you can help others on this journey. And reinvestment can look different in a variety of ways. So I invite you, if you have some questions about what your reinvestment journey looks like, give us a call at the Bereavement Center at 973-948-2283. And of course, you know, you can always email me. Just look us up at KarenAndQuinlanHospice.org and you'll find all of our information. And I thank you again for sharing this episode with us and our special guests, our live guests for the very first time. And I look forward to talking with you again soon. Yeah. Please reach out. Yeah. Thanks. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye. So thank you for joining me. And I'll see you again in another episode of Grief Matters. Bye.